Today's reading is taken from the book of Exodus, chapter 33, verses 7 to 11. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door, and Moses, until he had gone, and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at their tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a person speaks to their friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, son of, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. The word of the Lord. The Gospel readings from Matthew chapter 6. The Lord be with you. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew in the sixth chapter beginning at the fifth verse. Glory be to thee, O Christ. Jesus said, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The Gospel of Christ. Praise be to thee, O Christ. Please join me in prayer. Gracious God, we thank you for the gift of prayer. What an extraordinary thing that we can pray to you, unburden ourselves before you, place all of our cares, woes, and joys before you. I confess that I find praying an awkward business. I keep thinking, who am I to pray? But I know that to be false humility, hiding my prideful desire to be my own creator. So together we pray a prayer of joy in prayer, asking that we become your prayers for one another. Amen. Please be seated. So that was a prayer by the theologian Stanley Hauerwas. It's one that I love for its sincerity and its honesty. And I have to confess that like him, I find prayer sometimes to be an awkward business. Perhaps some of you do as well. Have you ever been at a meeting or at a meal, when someone says the dreaded words, 
and who would like to pray for us? That's Christianese for saying, not me. Don't you wish you had beaten that person to the punch? Have you ever met somebody who thinks, I pray plenty, my prayer life is good, I've got enough prayer in my life. Who am I to pray? And how can I pray? Even in private, when we're by ourselves, prayer rarely feels natural. You're praying to a God who you cannot see. And sometimes you can't find the right words. In the churches in which I grew up, there was always an elite circle of expert prayers. They're the intercessors. If one day they asked you to join them, then you knew, aha, I have arrived. I can pray with the big boys and big girls now. I was never really invited to join the intercessors. <laughs> so no matter what I do and how I pray, I feel like a beginner, a non-expert, a novice, someone fumbling along to find the right words to pray to my invisible God. In today's passage, Jesus teaches us how to pray. And he teaches us what true prayer is. These verses reveal that prayer, no matter how awkward it is for you or for me, can be the greatest blessing and the most sensitive, meaningful intimacy in our entire lives. So let's look at this passage together. If you could follow along with me, please turn to page 5 of your pew Bibles or turn on, open your own Bibles or, or your Bible apps um, because I'm going to stick closely to the text. My focus is on Jesus' teaching in verses 5 through 8 and on the opening lines of the Lord's Prayer in verses 9 through 10. We're going to talk about some of the other aspects of the Lord's Prayer as our sermon series continues in the weeks to come. So verses 5 through 8 can be divided into two sections. They, ha they have parallel structures. So Jesus first says what not to do and then tells us what we should do. Don't pray like that. Pray like this. So verses 5 and 6 say, don't pray, be hypocritical. Be real. And verses 7 to 8 say, don't pray empty words. Be intentional. Pray with meaning. Pray with your heart. So Jesus teaches us what we should not and what we should do, and then he shows us what the nature and meaning and reward of true prayer is through the Lord's Prayer. So let's start with verse 5. Verse 5 seems pretty straightforward. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. Don't stand in the synagogues or the street corners. This is really about the motivation for, for prayer who prayer is always and should be addressed to. It's not about whether prayer should be in public or in private. Jesus himself prayed in the synagogues and in public before large crowds over and over again, and so does Peter, so does Paul, so do all the other apostles. So this isn't about location. As Karen pointed out last week, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, frames this entire section of the Sermon on the Mount. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. 
The teaching here is that prayer should never be for the purpose of being seen by somebody else. God already sees us all. It's obvious, isn't it, that prayer shouldn't be addressed to anyone but God? And yet, we do it all the time. How many times have we heard prayers that are really a message for someone else? I've prayed some of them myself. Lord, please fill my annoying, aggravating, infuriating. This is the part that you say silently to yourself, not out loud. Lord, fill my coworker, colleague, boss, friend, whoever, with your Holy Spirit, that they may bear your fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So on and on and on. Whether you're praying this by yourself or in a group, who are you directing that prayer to? Are you really conversing with God when you pray this way? Was I doing that? I recall being on a mission trip, and there was a leader who would pray for everyone else to be respectful of one another's time. The thing is that he was never late for anything. We were always late. Who was that prayer for? Was it for us or for God? To avoid addressing prayer to others, Jesus tells us, go into your room and shut the door. The Greek word that's translated room here is also translated closet, storage room, bedroom, private room, inner room, or innermost room. As Tim pointed out a few weeks ago, in ancient Palestine, there was very little privacy. Everybody was in each other's business all the time. Most homes only had one door that could be closed and locked. So the inner room is the most private place in the whole house, maybe the only private place. So you are to go there so that you couldn't couldn't be seen by anyone else, and then you wouldn't be tempted to pray to anyone else. But even if you're alone, even if you're in private, that's not a guarantee against hypocrisy. The Greek, Greek word that we transliterate hypocrisy here literally means play-acting, role-playing, being someone you are not. The audience of the play-acting isn't specified in the word. That audience could be yourself. Often, our greatest hypocrisies are the lies that we tell ourselves. The human heart is deceitful above all things, as Karen reminded us last week. We are a people who go astray in our hearts over and over again, as the psalmist says. The most persistent and destructive of all my deceptions is my own self-deception. The theologian Karl Barth wrote that prayer is not prayer if it is addressed to anyone else but God. Anyone else includes us. Who are we when we pray? What part are we playing in our own hypocrisy? Often, we try to bring our best, our most faithful, our most pious selves into prayer. Not our whole selves, not our real selves. We don't bring our anger, our pride, our shame, our despair. We don't bring those things into the room. 
My own prayer life used to consist almost entirely of confession and thanksgiving. Those aren't bad things. We should confess our sins to God, and we should give thanks for everything we've been given. But that used to be all that I prayed. Now, it wasn't that I was so virtuous that I had no needs, no wants, no pain, no sorrow, no anger, no desperation. I'm a fallen, sinful human being. I had all those feelings all the time. I didn't bring them into the room before God. Demanding things, that felt ungrateful. It seemed wrong somehow to be greedy before the creator of the universe. He's already given me everything. Who am I to be asking for things to happen or stuff? When I saw others and heard others expressing their anger toward God, I couldn't really understand it. I mean, that felt disrespectful, not reverent. I didn't bring my whole self to God in prayer. By failing to beg and plead before God, I wasn't being more pious or worshipful. I was being hypocritical because I wasn't coming before God as a fallen creature who deserves nothing and has to cling to him for everything that I need. Augustine wrote that we are all beggars before God. We are necessarily beggars. Of course we are. We're limited human beings before an almighty God and his infinite mercy. Refusing to beg, that's not reverence. That's not worship. It's pride. To pretend to be anything other than a beggar is, was nothing but hypocrisy on my part. In prayer, we are to bring our whole selves into the room. Don't be hypocritical, be real. Verse 7, Jesus teaches us not to heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Some have read this verse as a command that prayer should be short. I mean, short is good. You know, short sermons and short prayers, um, if they get the job done, they're great. But this isn't just about length. In the gospel, Jesus prays all night and all day over and over again. In the parable of the persistent widow, Jesus teaches his disciples, cry out to God day and night, cling to him as the widow cling to the unrighteous judge. Paul tells us famously, pray without ceasing. That's not short. So Jesus not only prayed all night at Gethsemane, but in Matthew 26 we're told that he repeated the same prayer over and over again, three times. So Jesus isn't saying, don't pray lengthy or repetitive prayers. What he's saying, don't pray empty phrases. The word that's translated empty phrases means something like babbling, making a noise that has no meaning, sound after sound after sound of no consequence. So Jesus is saying, don't pray mindlessly and mechanically, 
Don't pile on words for the sake of quantity. As one commentator puts it, the paradox of prayer is that it is only when we are relieved of the necessity of much that we can experience the freedom for much. So prayers can be long or they can be short. But we are to pray with intention and with meaning and pray from our heart. Martin Luther understood this passage to mean it's not that your prayers have to be long, but they must be frequent and intense. Don't be mechanical, be intentional. And we don't need to find the right words either. That was one of the obstacles for me. Some of you may know I'm a lawyer by training. I used to be an academic. Finding the right words is and was very important to me. And I struggle to find the right way to express myself to my God. But Paul teaches us in Romans, we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. God already knows all that we are, all that we need. You don't have to find the perfect words. My wife and I used to joke that it only takes three words to have a complete prayer. Lord, you know. Right? It was a joke, but it's real. If your heart is in it, if behind those words lies everything that you want to pour out to your Father, it's a complete prayer. We don't need the right words. We just need to be real and intentional. We bring our whole selves into our prayer lives. What happens when we do that? What happens when we are real and we pray with meaning and from our hearts? The text teaches us that when we do that, we will truly be praying to our Father in heaven, who is always with us in secret. Your Father who is in secret. That's a remarkable phrase. When we seek God with our real selves in that room, we will find that he's already there. He's already in secret, waiting for us. In fact, he's always been there. He's always been waiting for us to step in and be fully present with him. As John Stott put it, behind all true prayer lies the conversation which God initiates. God reveals himself to us first. He invites us to step in and be with him. In, in Psalm 25, David prays that the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. That Hebrew word that's translated secret there in that psalm and elsewhere also means counsel or friendship. So secret here is an intimate relationship or friendship with God. It's being part of an inner circle where you can converse with him and he is privy to everything that you are and everything that God is can be revealed to you also in conversation. It's the image that we saw from our first reading in Exodus 33. Moses goes into the room, he goes into the tent of meeting, and he speaks with God face to face, as a friend. 
Scripture promises us that we can have that secret, that friendship, that intimacy that Moses had. We don't have to be like the other Israelites standing in front of their own tents. We don't have to be like Joshua wondering what's going on with the boss in there. We can be in the room, in the tent, conversing with God just as Moses was. The inner room is a place of intimacy. It's not a place of isolation where you go off to be by your own sim. Privacy doesn't imply solitude. Because we're modern readers, when we hear the words go into your room, we think you're going to just be by yourself. But in the ancient world, the inner room was a place where one might receive important guests, where one might spend time with the closest friends and family members. So going into the room isn't about mindfulness. It isn't about turning inwards. It isn't about subjectivity. It's not about centering yourself. Jesus tells us to go into the room not to find ourselves, but to find God. We are to go into the room to receive the most important guest of all, our Father. To pagan Gentiles, this is just unimaginable. How can you be friends with God? How can you talk with a God face to face as if to a friend? In the Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle taught that it was just impossible for man to be friends with the gods because humans and gods were so utterly different. The gods were superior in all ways. You need something in common to be friends. And humans have nothing in common with the Greek and Roman gods. But the image I have here is a people who are trying to beg and plead and wear down the resistance of their distant gods, to fatigue them, as Seneca put it, into giving them what they needed and what they wanted. I'm reminded of an image from the musical Oliver. Oliver Twist goes up to uh, the people feeding, spooning out gruel in the orphanage, and he says, please, sir, may I have some more? Right? So it's begging, it's pleading, it's wearing down. You have to wear down the resistance of a grudging and reluctant vending machine into giving you your daily food. But we are not strangers, and we are not orphans before our God. We have something in common with God because God the Son is fully God and fully man. The Son is like us in all ways except for our sin. Through and with the incarnate Son, we stand with Moses and we can speak to God as to a friend. So the one who brings us to the tent is Christ. More specifically, it is the cross that brings us into the room, that reconciles us with the Father, that we may be with him. In John 15, Jesus declares, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Christ restored us in him, with him, and with the Father 
through the cross. On the cross, he laid down his life for us and he tore the veil and allowed us to enter that holy of holies in the temple that we may see the Father's face. The Anglican theologian Catherine Sonderager writes that the wings of prayer are what bring us within the veil to that holy mercy seat to Christ's own person. So we enter the room not just as friends, but as children, as beloved sons and daughters. In all of Christ's many prayers in the Gospels, there's only one where he does not address God as the Father. It's his final prayer on the cross from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He put himself in our place and paid the price on the cross so that our God is now our Father. There is no true prayer possible without the cross. So that is our reward. Jesus declared that our Father who sees in secret will reward us. The reward is not some prize we get for getting high marks or doing a good job. The reward isn't some future health and wealth that we get for being pious. The reward is intimacy with our Father now in prayer. The price has already been paid, not by us, but by Christ. It's not a duty, it's a gift that we have been given. Our perfect, loving, gracious Father welcomes us as his children and asks us to call him our Father. That pronoun our is very important here. God is not just the Father, he's our Father. The opening lines of the Lord's Prayer echo the words of the Jewish Kaddish, one of the most important prayers in the synagogue liturgy. So in that prayer, faithful Jews pray of or about the Lord God. May his name be declared great and holy, the Kaddish says. May he cause his kingdom to reign in your lives. Jesus, through the cross, changes all of these pronouns from third person to second person. We don't pray about the Lord and his kingdom and his will. We pray to our Father. To our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. We address him intimately as his children. There is no I, there is no me, mine, or my in the Lord's Prayer. It's not my Father, it's our Father, it's all of us. Prayer to the Father is only possible with all the saints and with Christ. We call God our Father because we stand with Christ. We can enter the room as his sons and daughters because we participate in the prayers of the resurrected living Son towards the living eternal Father. All prayer implies Christ. It doesn't matter that you don't invoke his name. It doesn't matter if the prayer is wordless. It doesn't matter what you say. Prayer assumes Christ and the cross. 
all prayer participates in the prayers of Christ. And this is not just a collective prayer. It also turns all of our individual prayers into intercessions. We don't just pray for my bread. We pray for our bread. My bread, your bread, his bread, her bread, and our forgiveness. You pray for our, we pray for ourselves and for one another all at the same time. So awkward or not, expert or not, it turns out I have been an intercessor just by praying the words of the Lord's Prayer. Whether we pray this prayer um, and we become prayers for one another, as Howard Wars puts it, or we come up with our own words, we always pray collectively as God's children. And what is the content of that prayer? That your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That prayer that Jesus repeated three times at Gethsemane is precisely this. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The Lord's Prayer is Christ's own prayer. As the poet and hymn writer Francis Havergal put it, take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. We're all beggars before our Father. We bring our whole selves into the room in prayer so that our entire beings can be molded through prayer in accordance with God's will. But we're not just beggars. We are also children, sons and daughters of the perfect Heavenly Father. He has reconciled us to Him through Christ. We pray to God because we pray with Christ. As we close, I'd like to invite you all to join me in our reward once again and pray together the words of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.